going to the chapel and we're gonna get married. Going to the chapel and we're gonna get married. Gee, I really love you and we're gonna get married. Going to the chapel, oh, oh. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror. We're podcasting from the horror and, dare I say, love-filled halls of academia. I mean, we've got a big announcement. We're pretty excited about it. And, you know, we just can't wait to share it with you guys. Andrea and I have been doing this podcast for just over a year. We've been friends for a bit longer than that. And, you know, we've been kind of like common-law married to each other via this podcast. And uh, we've decided to get officially podcast married to each other. I... I I'm not going to lie, I, I asked Andrea because she's worth it, and uh, she said, yes, you wouldn't believe how much she cried. Tell them how much you cried, Andrea. I'm not going to tell them how much I cried. Why don't you tell them how much you gave my dad for my hand? <laughs> a supersized Happy Meal. But yeah, it's that time of year. If you're not with someone, golly, do you feel alone and probably drink a lot by yourself if you are with someone you're forced to make weird plans with them and be more in love with them than you usually are it's it's a strange time of year and it's a time of year that we can't ignore because gosh darn it it's just so interesting and there are so many horror films that deal with these themes of love and of desire and of needing someone else last year we tackled the obsessive part of love with fear and fatal attraction and this year we thought we'd maybe go the other direction do a little bit more love a little bit more socially acceptable so in this episode we're going to be talking about monster brides that's right we are going to be talking about the classic bride of frankenstein and the less classic brides of dracula As Alex was saying, we already kind of took a look at the obsessive kind of love. We took a look at really taboo love. We looked at teenage love that was obsessive and violent and threatened to disrupt the nuclear family. And then we looked at the obsessive love that threatened to disrupt the nuclear family through infidelity and through cheating, which is something that marriage is kind of designed to protect against. So we thought we'd talk about marriage this time. Marriage is, as you know, it is the tie that binds, and it's the tie that binds us so Socially, as well as legally, and also culturally. Now, major changes in Western society have necessitated changes in the laws. And as we've seen, the divorce rates for Western countries right now is sitting pretty at about 50%. So, so a lot of people are eschewing traditional marriage in favor of common law arrangements. And the law has changed to recognize the rights of these civil unions, even outside of traditional marriage circumstances. Traditionally, marriage was used for kind of political reasons. It was used to bind families together, families of a certain stature. It was designed to restrict the incest taboo, to maintain culture and values. And we were just kind of joking about it, but in this context, women were commodities. They were property under these circumstances. They were exchanged for a dowry. And this is why women and children often take their dad's name as they become property of the patriarch. And I've always been really fascinated by the idea of marriage because while my parents are still together and actually quite happy, they never got married. They were together for two or three years and then I came along and they still lived together and were in love and they just never got around to getting married. So it was an idea that I didn't really grow up with, but it was really interesting for me because as I grew up, a lot of my friends' parents were getting divorced and they were going through hard times and and had all these kind of random issues that were coming up, which are a result of divorce. But my parents who had never gotten married seemed pretty happy and, and worked through a lot of stuff and, you know, still together and still doing pretty all right. So this idea of actually, you know, sitting down with someone and saying, I like you the most of all, 
and I'm going to be with you forever. In fact, I want to do that so much. We're going to pay money, get a banquet hall, make our friends choose between like three different meals and have them all witness this. It's, it's a kind of foreign concept to me. Uh, I've gone to weddings and they always just seem a bit silly. I'm, I'm not sure how I really feel about the whole idea. I like them. I think now in a contemporary society, it's become more of a romantic ideal, but we're still really living with the shadow or the ghost, if you will, of that patriarchal dominance where, you know, you have a ring and you might change your name. And if you don't change your name, that's a really big decision too. And that's a big statement to do that still. So we're still kind of living in the shadow of that. So it's an interesting time to talk about marriage and really decide what you want to do if you're in a long-term relationship. Right, which actually brings me to my next point I was going to make about marriage was another purpose that it served historically was to legitimize the children. And so the knowledge that Alex Wait, here... what? What? <laughs> is your last name Snow? You know nothing, Jon Snow. Now, our listeners know I'm Italian, so I have been to many a wedding and many an extravagant wedding. Italians are famous for very extravagant weddings. I've seen weddings where the bride pulled up in a buggy, trussed by horses. What? I wish I was joking. I've, I've been the flower girl. I've been a bridesmaid. I've been a bridesmaid numerous times. And I think at this point, I think it's just because I make the best speeches. But to be honest, I really love weddings. And while I can't really see myself wearing white, I do like parties. And so for me, and I think for a lot of women of our generation, it's a decision that has a lot more to do with social and cultural and political factors. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I really want to see how much a man thinks I'm worth by the size of the ring he gets me. So that's something to really look forward to, I think. It's true. It's nice to have a visual external indicator (laughs) of love and income, which are the two most important things in a working marriage, I think. So for this episode, we decided to look at two classic horror movies. We do a lot of contemporary stuff, so we wanted to look at a couple of classics, and we chose two films that looked at the brides of monsters. And one of the reasons we wanted to do so is that it's weird that monsters would have brides. They're not really normal people, and it's not really a something that you would maybe expect. And the other thing is that these brides of sequels were very popular historically, but they kind of fizzled out after the classical era up until the most recent example I could think of of a monster having a bride was Chucky. Yeah, and one of the most important things to keep in mind is the two films we're talking about do come from slightly different eras. So, Bride of Frankenstein comes from the classic era of universal horror, which is, you know, one of the most important eras in horror films. Now, one of the things to keep in mind about these films is that they really kept Universal Studios doors open during the Great Depression while people were saving money and trying to live on food stamps and just trying to survive. They would still go see movies, especially horror movies, movies about monsters. These were fascinating, larger-than-life movies that took them out of their own personal everyday horrors. So they actually became a really big cultural touchstone. And you can still see a lot of the influence now. I mean, they still resonate with culture and horror culture. So they're a really important thing to keep in mind, especially if you love film. Now, the other film we're talking about, Brides of Dracula, came out in the 60s, and that was kind of in the heyday of hammer horror. So the British film industry, which has kind of lived in, you know, peaks and valleys, hammer horror was one of the most successful independent studios ever because they produced what some people called schlock and what some people, including someone like Martin Scorsese, considers high art. These were really pulpy but really interesting and well acted in some degrees revolutionary films that kept the genre alive 
and you know in the post-war cold war era were again a really great source of entertainment for people who were dealing with a lot of real and present issues so they were a great form of escape and a way to get your mind off of any issues or troubles you were having Another interesting thing is that Andrea and I just kind of picked these two films because they were the biggest bride of dot 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 films that came about. Now, not only did they come from two studios that separately were very profitable because of these kind of films that they produced, they also took classic horror literature and presumptively put on a sequel to it that the original author never intended. So... In Bride of Frankenstein, you have the opening scene, which actually involves Mary Shelley, Percy Shelley, you know, talking about how she could have created these monsters. And isn't it so crazy because she's such a lady? I'm a lady! And then you have Brides of Dracula, which actually keeps with the tone of Bram Stoker's mythology and the fact that Dracula is actually dead, but that his disciples and what they constantly term as the cult of Dracula and the cult of vampirism has continued on and is living in these kind of dark remote sections of Transylvania and of this kind of unbeknownst country in Eastern Europe. So to start off with Bride of Frankenstein was made in 1935 and it's the sequel to the 1931 original followed by Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, Curse of Frankenstein. We could go on and on. Now, what's interesting to me about this film is that in popular culture, I think horror fans always kind of grumble at this perpetual confusion of who is referred to as Frankenstein. Frankenstein's monster is Frankenstein's monster, and the doctor is Frankenstein. But in pop culture, you'll often see the monster referred to as Frankenstein. So going into this film, you know, we've all seen the very iconic figure of the Bride of Frankenstein as the monster's bride. But in this film, Dr. Frankenstein also gets married and also has a bride. And I think depending on who you read as Frankenstein in this case, the film actually takes on quite different meanings because you have the heteronormative romantic love of Dr. Frankenstein and his new wife. And then you have the perverted sick love of the monster Frankenstein and his undead bride. Right. So I wanted to kind of bring that up on the outset is we're going to try to be really careful about Dr. Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster, but if we fuck it up, bear with us. Uh, And also, just obviously for anyone who has not seen Bride of Frankenstein, they changed Dr. Frankenstein's name from the novel, which is Victor Frankenstein. And in the movies, he is referred to as Henry Frankenstein, which is different from, you know, something like Shane Frankenstein or... Bob Frankenstein or Dakota Frankenstein. Well, it doesn't really have the same flow, does it? It takes away from the cultural mystique, which may not be politically correct, but it is a part of the mythology. And it slightly kind of hinders that believability as a contemporary audience where you're watching it. And if you're a listener of this podcast, I assume you're quite an informed horror connoisseur. So it it rings as very untrue and very odd. So for a quick recap, and I'm going to keep this quick, because if you heard our last episode, you know that it's not my favorite thing to do. But this one's actually really easy to recap. The story picks up pretty much right after the last one did, but it begins with a framing narrative where we see Mary Shelley doing some nice cross-stitch with a couple of pleasant fellas. And, uh, and, you know, they kind of sit and they marvel at how such darkness and how such a twisted story could have come from such a lovely little lady. Astonishing creature. I love Byron. Frightened of thunder, fearful of the dark. And yet you have written a tale that sent my blood into icy creeps. <laughs> Look at her, Shelley. Can you believe that bland and lovely brow conceived of Frankenstein? A monster created from cadavers out of rifled graves? Isn't it astonishing? I don't know why you should think so. What do you expect? Such an audience needs something stronger than a pretty little love story. So why shouldn't I write of monsters? And it's interesting because the two men are Lord Byron and Lord Shelley, two other huge Regency poets of that era. And so you've got these two kind of masters doting and fawning over this petite, cross-stitching little woman. And how could she ever have done all of this monstrosity? 
And to their surprise and delight, she informs them that the story isn't over. There's more. And she proceeds to spin the tale that becomes the film. Now, the travesty of the film, in my opinion, is that it is essentially a giant rehashing of the first one. Uh, at the end of the first film, we believe that both Henry Frankenstein and his monster have tragically died. But lo and behold, he's alive! And not in the Frankenstein-y way, but in the, in the he miraculously escaped this fire kind of way. As they're both alive and well, and we return to... Frankenstein's monster menacing the neighborhood and being grossly misunderstood, and Henry Frankenstein being returned to the doting arms of his beloved Elizabeth, who hopes he never practices medicine again. So the film goes on really similarly to the first ones. Frankenstein kind of... There, I just did it. It's Frankenstein's monster stumbles upon this cottage where there is a lonely blind man who befriends him and thanks god that he's found a friend but of course that all goes to shit because the search party that's looking for the monster comes upon the cottage and shoots him and all hell breaks loose and it's basically a cat and mouse with the monster while henry is kind of grappling with the moral dilemma that we thought he had more or less solved in the first film but now he's a little bit confused enter dr pretorius who was previously a mentor to Henry Frankenstein, and he's saying, you know, I've seen what you've done, I've read your notes, I read your Wikipedia bio, and I think we should work together and still do it. So he kind of blackmails Henry Frankenstein into making a new creature, and what would this creature be? Obviously a bride to Frankenstein, obviously an Eve figure to Frankenstein's Adam. If we're going to create life and we're going to create a man, we have to create a woman and see if they don't beget little undead horrendous offspring. You make man like me? No. Woman. Friend for you. Woman. Friend. Yes. I want friend like me. Yeah, it's. I feel like it's almost a weird prequel to something like Eraserhead, but... There is that big, huge notion of the Adam and Eve theme. There's a sense that throughout the film, Frankenstein's monster realizes how alone he is in this world and that when he tries to connect with other people, whether it be for friendship and connection or just to simply to share food, he is rejected at some point or another because of his monstrosity. Now, when he comes upon a morgue where he is hiding from some people who are trying to attack him, he comes across the dead body of a young woman. And he then realizes what he's missing in his life is a mate. So then he requires the two doctors to make him a bride. And that will, in a sense, legitimize him, legitimize his existence, and put him on the right path. Again, going back to that theme of Adam and Eve, there's that sense of it's new, it's better, it's more evolved than a human. There is something different about them because they've been reassembled, they've been assembled by doctors, two of the best you know, minds in the field of reanimation, I guess. But you know, you've got that motion forward. Uh, we are going to create something new. We are going to set it within a context that is understood and understandable, and that by being in a couple, this is socially acceptable. That's right. And one thing I feel like we can't get away from when we're talking about this film, you know, Frankenstein was drawn upon a classic horror novel that was celebrated for its literary merit. So it's interesting that the film deviates from the original story. The original 1931 Frankenstein film did not have a bride. And in the book, Frankenstein's lover Elizabeth was actually murdered by the monster, adding to his horror. So it's interesting that that didn't happen in the first film. And in the second film, The Bride of Frankenstein, more has to do with the monster's bride and his main motivation to exist. Yeah, in fact, Elizabeth in this film is the one who's kind of pulling him out of it, pulling him towards normalcy and stability. So you've got the sense that... At the end of the film, when Frankenstein, his monster, the other doctor and the bride are all in this you know, room together and Elizabeth is trying to pull Dr. Frankenstein out, 
there is a sense that because their love is human and legitimate and quote unquote pure because they have been married, that they deserve to live, that they deserve to go on. In fact, it is the monster Frankenstein who pushes him out to save him. And, you know, as, as kind of weird and as tonally awkward sometimes as the Bride of Frankenstein is, there is true pathos and true heartbreak when the monster says, we belong dead. We belong dead. And not only because you've gone to kind of get to know and, and sympathize and understand with the monster, but because he can't see a future for himself or his bride. So it's a very emotionally and morally complicated moment where he chooses death. The monster identifies who is corrupt, whether it's through, you know, reanimation, restitching together of body parts or of a morally corrupt nature. He decides who dies and he decides to give his maker, Dr. Frankenstein, another chance to be happy and to live and to go on. That's right. And it kind of provides an interesting window into the psyche around marriage is not only is only married love legitimate, but it kind of implies that what is there in life if not marriage? And I think this is kind of something that has resonated into our generation a little bit, that if you don't marry and have children, you are losing out. The figure of the spinster kind of permeates our culture and I feel like it's being contested particularly in recent years particularly with shows like you know Sex in the City glamorize the single female as being well you know there's more to life than stuff like that and I think that's very true but at this checkpoint in history it was a moral philosophical and existential consideration now, what Alex is talking about, I don't think I mentioned in the synopsis because I suck at them, is that at the very end of the film, when they've decided to do this, they dig up the bones of a recently deceased female, reanimate her in spectacular fashion. You know, they put her on a slab and they bring her up to the roof and they bring her back down and it's all, you know, the film is really beautiful. I, I'm going to talk a lot of smack about it because I, I found it horribly disappointing on the rewatch. But the sets are spectacular. The music is beautiful. It has that beautiful classic theatricality about it that I really enjoy. But the actual bride of Frankenstein's monster probably gets about 15 minutes screen time tops. Barely. Like yeah. Maybe 10. Maybe 10. Alex thinks I'm being generous. But basically, she shows her face. She takes one look at Frankenstein, is scared. She recoils. She hisses like a cat. And at that, Frankenstein's monster is like, all right, that's it. You guys get out of here because I'm shutting this down. There's no reason to live because she rejects him outright. I don't know what audiences might have expected at the reanimation of the bride. I kind of felt like she would be understandably horrified and apprehensive at first and might need some cajoling, but she didn't get a whole lot of patience. No, I think there's something very interesting that happens in this film, and it's kind of present, I found, throughout the whole film, but especially when the bride emerges. The lighting changes, the the shots change, they get a lot closer. And, I mean, obviously you've got Elsa Lancaster's beautiful face, and they play with all the shadows. And I think that's why iconically and culturally we identify the bride of frankenstein so readily as her with the hair and the cheekbones and the face and the dark dark lighting but there is this lack of understanding and empathy towards her what we get in this film is another retread of frankenstein's journey again boris karloff is fantastic. He does a lot of amazing work, but it's a lot of stuff we've already seen in Frankenstein. And so we get to see this journey again. There's a lot of interesting stuff, a lot of thematically interesting stuff that happens to the male's journey through understanding, cultural relevance, all of this stuff that's going on. But when we arrive to the bride, there is that sense of complete and total misunderstanding and that if she cannot right the wrongs of Frankenstein's monster's diseased existence, then there is no saving him. Then he might as well have died in that windmill. 
That's right. And before we started recording, Alex and I were just kind of comparing our notes, and we both noted how interesting it was that when the bride of Frankenstein's monster is reanimated, she's reanimated hostile, much as if Frankenstein was. And when I think back to other classic films of the period, the big one that sticks out in my mind is White Zombies, starring Bela Lugosi, was another universal film, which is largely credited as being the first Western zombie film that really depicts the zombie as per its Haitian cultural history. And the female reanimated zombie in that film is able to play the piano. And she's still beautiful and elegant, and she's still a lady. But the guy who reanimated her to be his mate complains that the light has gone out of her eyes. And yet she's still kind of able to fulfill the very basic feminine necessities expected of her. So I actually kind of thought it was interesting that Frankenstein's monster didn't come out of the oven, you know, with fresh-baked cookies. I really take this to speak to this movement. Now, obviously... Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein in 1818, so you're looking at a more Regency era. I'm going to talk about some theories right now that are coming out of the Victorian era, so that's more Dracula, but I'm hoping we can all kind of agree, same century, maybe some of the same ideals, uh, and you'll stick with me on this one. But one of the theories that I was introduced to when I was doing my undergrad was a writer named John Ruskin, and he was a British social writer. Very interesting and confounding figure in his own right. He delivered a lecture that was titled Sesame and Lilies that was basically about the social place of a woman within a man's house. Now, Ruskin thought women provided human compassion that must balance social order dominated by men so that women would be empathetic, sympathetic, and really calm the man who was, you know, all-seeing, all-knowing, and driving the family forward or driving business forward. They were the temperament. They were the foil. They kept humanity and society moving because they could, you know, romance the man. They could make him tender. They could make them open up and therefore be intimate and then hopefully, fingers crossed, create babies. So there was a real social necessity in Ruskin's mind for the female je ne sais quoi. They had this real force within them that could bring about stability and normality. And again, we're seeing this kind of Victorian, and I'm going to argue right now, Regency romanticism of the family, that the mother figure was highly, highly desirable. Again, you see this in something like J.M. Barrie's Peter Pan, where Peter Pan finds Wendy and brings her to Never Never Land, where she mothers the lost boys, and she brings them together, and there is this sense of uniformity and unity that was severely lacking so that the civility that a woman brings to a situation is going to temper and clear the air. So when you have the Bride of Frankenstein, when she is almost animalistic in her birth and her reaction to those around her, there is a sense that the society has essentially crumbled or is not going to function if she can't temper it. It's a really interesting point, and looking back at this film, I almost feel like, if I may impose some sociological messages, is it's almost as if the story is telling us that at our root, both male and female are animalistic in nature, and that reanimated at our very basics, we're all kind of hostile, and we all have those aggressive impulses. However, it is the real bride of Frankenstein, Elizabeth, that exhibits these traits, that Alex is talking about. She's the one who is nurturing Henry and telling him what's best for him and taking control of the situation and saying that you can't play God. Now, in the little precursor, the little framing narrative to the film, I also really got the impression that they were marveling at how, insofar as it was shocking that Mary Shelley came up with such a morbid story of course she would come up with such a sympathetic monster with such a huge moral tale, right? Yeah. So it kind of softened the blow a little bit. The publishers did not see that my purpose was to write a moral lesson. The punishment that befell a mortal man who dared to emulate God. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think what a lot of people have kind of come to take Bride of Frankenstein as is a black comedy or some kind of social satire. I, I don't think that's incorrect. I think at its time it was not meant for that. So it's, you've got to be a little tongue in cheek if you consider Bride of Frankenstein a satire. Not to say you're wrong or that that theory is wrong. You've just got to understand that. Now, one of the reasons I think for that being is that, you know, as I was just speaking about and as Andrea was speaking about, you're trying to stabilize something that is inherently monstrous. And by socializing it in a way we understand, that should make it better. And then when it doesn't, it's just truly monstrous and it should be contained and dead and awful and gone out of the face of our planet. Now, what's I think satirical about these films and what's actually quite funny is that the world around these monsters is inherently wrong, that there's something kind of diseased and not right about them. So when we kind of come to this old woman who's kind of the Greek chorus to this film, constantly narrating and commenting on things that are going wrong, there seems to be a lot wrong in this world. So the fact that these monsters are wrong is quite comical because their surroundings are actually entirely corrupt. Well, I must say, that's the best bar I ever saw in all my life. <laughs> what are you crying for? It's terrible. I know it's terrible. But after all their murders and poor Mr. Henry being brought home to die, I'm glad to see the monster roasted to death before my very eyes. It's too good for him. And as far as satire goes, I also kind of got the hint that... There is a character who kind of criticizes a mob mentality. I mean, this was a time where if something was going on in the town, you know, a monster is ravaging. The entire town rallies and attends the burning and cheers that this fucker is burning in hell and it's kind of fucked up. And so I feel like there's there's an authority figure who's saying, yeah, a monster indeed. Like, you guys are the real monsters. There's definitely a, a twinge of that. Way ahead of its time, probably not fully developed, but I picked it up for sure. And for anyone who's interested on a bit more understanding and cultural understanding of this time and a bit later, I would highly recommend the film Gods and Monsters, which is about the director of this film, James Whale. And he's played by Ian McKellen. And it's a fascinating portrait and a very tragic portrait. And as someone who is obviously homosexual and closeted, who had a lot of you know repressed feelings, they really come out in this film. And by understanding that, you see a lot of societal repression. And I feel like if you're someone who is facing societal repression, you kind of see through the veneer of social normality and heteronormality that everything is good if you do this. That all becomes very transparent and very fake. So there, there's a lot of social commentary in this film, despite the bride only being in it for two minutes. No, that's right. And it's a very important point. I think a lot of the film criticism, a lot of the high-level criticism of this film looks at the latent homosexual themes that come out in it. And, you know, recent years have seen tremendous progression in terms of same-sex marriage and it's been a really hot button topic for a while now but for the longest time same-sex relationships were excluded from the prestige of being a bride of having that glamour and wearing white and this dream wedding that we've all kind of been brought up to dream about and that someday that's going to be you if you're really lucky we're going to talk about it more when we get into the next film but Definitely, if you're interested in that, there's a wealth of critique on this film, looking at it from that lens. Lights, sound. Okay for sound. Action. The Bride of Frankenstein. A man with a legendary career behind him. Who's this new yard man? Mr. Boom, by that or something be. He came cheap. A man with his life still ahead of him. Hey, the master wants to know if you're free for lunch. I do have a lawn this afternoon. I'm free until then. Expect nothing fancy. Come in, Mr. Boone. Separated by class. Are you famous? I was merely a director. You have the most architectural skull. Have you ever sat for an artist? By time. You were a soldier. 
I was an officer in the trenches. And by desires. All I know is bugger. He's a bugger. Does that surprise you? I'm not, you know. Mm. I did not think you a bugger at all. They have nothing in common. Mr. Clayton Boone. My gardener. He's never met a princess. Only queens. Except their humanity. I've spent much of my life outrunning the past. And now it floods all over me. I'm losing my mind. Every day a new piece of it goes and soon there'll be none of it left. My condition will continue to deteriorate until the end of my life. Why are you here? Let's get this straight. What did you want from me? What do you want? Just back from the hospital already, you're chasing after boys. Oh, shut up. Man's gonna make up his life alone. A philosopher. Thoreau, with a lawnmower. Do you believe people come into our lives for a purpose? To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> <laughs> so, we understand each other. Live and let live. And one more thing we wanted to bring up about this film is we both found it really interesting, the dual role of Elsa Lancaster. So she plays Mary Shelley in the opening framing sequence. She plays the bride to Frankenstein's monster. And then there's no end framing sequence. The monster burns down the lab and everybody kind of cowers and then that's it. The credits roll and that's the end. So they didn't close it off with back in the parlor with Mary and her gentleman friends. Like that doesn't happen. So we thought it was really interesting, the decision to play this dual role. And again, maybe this is kind of a stretch, but I almost wondered if this was intended to suggest some kind of wish fulfillment on the part of Mary Shelley, that she's telling this story with these strong male leads and they're so existential about men and mankind that she's like, I got to put some femininity into here. That, you know, And eventually they wanted to create woman and then they created this woman. And, and, and is the implication that she put herself in that position? I think it is, but I think... The fact that the character only shows up for maybe 15 minutes, I think more like 10 minutes, at the very end of the film doesn't do much except reject her male partner and you know cause him to burn them all to death. I think that's more speaking to the role that a woman had. If she couldn't satisfy her mate and couldn't create a family and couldn't create that sense of domestic comfort, then it was essentially all for naught. That life was useless. and But she wrote Frankenstein when she was 18. She was an absolutely fascinating woman and an incredible mind and an incredible writer and someone who I personally have a lot of respect for. So it, it's kind of a shame that you don't get that ending frame to it. Even just a pullback to you know show them again in that parlor and having them say, and that is how the monster ended horribly you know that I feel like that would have given it a little bit more closure but the, the sense was is that Mary Shelley lived and died with Frankenstein over her and obviously it's she wrote a masterpiece and that's an incredible lineage to have but I think you know filmically and in that kind of cultural portrayal I would have loved to have seen just just a little more about the woman because she is, you know, and I've, I've researched her and I've read up on her and she's still very much a woman of mystery to me, but someone who I, I greatly respect and am deeply fascinated by. And now we flash forward to 1960 and Hammer Horror's Brides of Dracula. Listen to the beat of your heart, Marianne. You hear the beat of fear within you? Fear that will rise to a shattering crescendo of terror. You have strayed into a world of evil, where frightened people are held in the grip of unearthly horror. Beware of pity for the handsome prisoner in the Castle Meister. Beware of love. 
For in your heart is only the pulsating throb of terror. Starring Peter Cushing, as the doctor locked in mortal combat with overwhelming evil. Also starring Frida Jackson as Greta, who served the vampires with insane loyalty. <laughs> you didn't be afraid, she's dead. Martita Hunt, the Baroness, victim of her own son. Beautifully Bon Molor, France's latest sex kitten, as Marianne whose beauty was her passport to the twilight world of the undead. <laughs> David Peel as the Baron, blindingly handsome, yet his kiss transformed the most beautiful girls into monsters. The Brides of Dracula, the titular characters, were real characters in Bram Stoker's novel. They were these women who lived in Dracula's castle, served to kind of keep men folk, such as Jonathan Harker, entranced and at the castle and feed on them, and Dracula would sometimes bring them prey, and so they were real characters. So it's odd that they're not really in Brides of Dracula. Now, what we have in this film is a baron who is part of the cult of vampirism. So we meet a young uh, school teacher, Marianne, who is traveling to Pakistan to be a French teacher at a finishing school. She stops one night in Transylvania, and the baroness of this castle invites her in for the night. Now, what the Baroness does not mention is that she happens to have an undead son living in this castle, as one might. Marianne sees this undead, quote-unquote, attractive son from her window, rushes down to him, and he entrances her until she goes to get the key to unlock the chain that is keeping him to the castle. This is, okay, guys, this is one of those movies, the more I describe it, the weirder I realize it is. It all seemed pretty normal when I was watching it. Yeah, it's absolutely absurd that she never once asks, why are you chained there? He kills his mother, the Baroness, she's undead, and he leaves Marianne basically in the woods. Dr. Van Helsing arrives to the scene who is played by Peter Cushing. So he arrives on the scene, kind of realizes what's going on, saves Marianne, gets her up from the forest, takes her to the finishing school, and then realizes that the Baron is a vampire and on the loose. So it's up to him to stop the cult of vampirism and save Marianne from this Baron, which is now stalking her and indeed trying to marry her. That's right. And perhaps I should preface this by saying I have a real love-hate relationship with the Hammer Horror films. I love classic horror. I love Victorian-era horror. I love the cinematography and the outfits and the music and the script, and I love it. And Hammer, for me, is just kind of this big black spot between the classic and the modern. And when I was writing my thesis, I remember I was talking about horror is this and horror is that, and I had a second reader who was in film studies, and he's like, you cannot publish this thesis unless you talk a little about Hammer. And I was like, I don't want to talk about Hammer because they don't contribute anything to what I was talking about. It was schlock. It was campy. Some people like it. Some people don't. But it doesn't have anything to do with what I want to say. So... 
he wouldn't sign off on it until I did my due diligence, and it was painful for me, so I remain a little resentful. At this point, looking back on Hammer Horror, it's really hit or miss. There's some that I really enjoy and others not so much. This one for me was a real slog to get through. I thought it was really campy. I thought it was really cheesy. I thought Peter Cushing was great, but the story was well beneath him. And I actually thought there was a lot of long sequences that had no music, no sound, no ambience. And I was just like, fuck, let's just get on with it already. So I found this one a bit of a slog to get through, and I want to get that off my chest on the outset. Now, as Alex mentioned, the brides of Dracula appear in the novel as these three women that he essentially keeps as pets. It harkens back to what I was talking about as the really practical function of marriage and that they keep his estate, they keep his home, and he in turn brings them scraps that he feeds them. They're practically his pets. And insofar as they're his brides... He doesn't show them any familial affection, and the object of his affection, of course, is Mina. And so these brides are kind of brides in name only, and that's very true in this movie as well. Because throughout the course of the film, he recruits a couple of women to do his bidding, but none of whom he's romantically linked with. He's interested in that Marianne, and the Baron and Marianne become involved very, very quickly. Their engagement, I think they spent about 10 minutes together alone before she decided that she was in love with him. Is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. Well, now, monsieur, I shall leave you entirely to yourselves for 10 minutes. And yet, after the engagement has been announced, Marianne is alone with another student teacher at the school who just goes on about how envious she is. You're going to be a baroness. Isn't he handsome? But when Van Helsing later asks, are you in love with him? She answers yes, without a blink. And it's like they haven't, they haven't spent a second together. So it's interesting to see how the definition of love and being in love and matrimony and what that means has changed since this film came out. Yeah, there's a real tonal problem with the uh, meaning of love and the different definitions of brides in this film. Obviously, Marianne is the female protagonist pretty much in this film, so we really follow her and we identify with her because everyone else has a previous knowledge of vampirism, so she is our entrance into this movie. So the other brides are the other teacher, as Andrea just mentioned, and then a village girl who is mentioned only as she died at the hands of the vampire. And then we only meet her as she is back from the undead. So you have these two kind of women who are just there and were just attacked by this baron. And you only have the real emotional connection, and I'm using emotional connection with air quotes here, but this is a podcast, so you can't see it, but trust me, I'm doing it, (laughs) between Marianne and the baron. So if I was one of the other brides, I'd be a little pissed off. Is she better than me? She's not fucking better than me. Is she better than me, Andrea? Yes. What? (laughs) Well, that's definitely the sense that you get from the film is that his brides are his underlings, Gina and the village girl, whereas the object of his affection, you know, they're betrothed, but she's not quite his bride. Well, that's actually a very interesting point. And one of the big things in the Victorian era was the idea of the quote unquote new woman. Now, this was a woman who was educated, maybe had a job, something like school teacher, something very practical and very feminine and very nurturing, and was actually trying to take control of her life a little bit. Now, in Bram Stoker's Dracula in the novel, you actually have Mina as, you know, an assistant school teacher. She learns to use a typewriter, uses it to write her diary. This, this is a very small thing, but it's actually quite important in the realm of the Victorian era. So, you know, she is this kind of new thing. She is evolved, but she is still in love and dedicated to Jonathan Harker in that novel. Now, parlaying that into this film, you have Marianne, who is a teacher, and she is to some extent worldly. She's traveling on her own and she seems quite bright to a certain extent within this film and she's very kind and patient and loyal and understanding 
and independent to a certain degree until she's about to get married. Now, there is a sense that there is something very attractive about that and that that needs to be kind of quelled and repressed and put into a mold that is understood and one of the easiest molds for a young woman of that era and indeed through most of the 20th century was marriage. To be someone's bride and better yet to be the bride of someone important, someone like a baron. And we were kind of reminded of socioeconomic stature throughout this film through the role of the headmaster, the headmaster of the school that Marianne goes to work for is this swarthy little man and he's really strict and he's got these rules and he keeps his bitches in line. Oh, you better believe it, right? But when Van Helsing comes, oh, well, you can't visit at this hour and what are you doing here? And they're strict. Oh, you're Dr. Van Helsing. And the same thing happens with the Baron. So I feel like it really illustrates that socioeconomic stature. The fact that the Baron is a fucking monster is quite irrelevant next to the fact that he's the Baron. And, you know, the fact that his visits begin to coincide with murders within the school don't really mean anything. And who might you be? A friend of Mademoiselle's. I have made it a rule, sir, a rule of the Academy. The staff are allowed no followers. No followers. I'm a doctor. Leiden University. Almost a colleague. My dear Dr. Van Helsing, you had only to tell me. Heavens, how could I be expected to recognize a doctor of philosophy, a doctor of theology, a professor of metaphysics by the cut of his trousers? Yeah, it's it's very odd that the other murderers in the film seem to have very little impact, especially of the other school teacher. This just kind of happens, and they've got to watch over her body, but only because Van Helsing tells them to. Otherwise, it would have just been a sad misunderstanding. So the notion of death in this film is is a very skewed one, and one that I'm sure was done with you know haste and a misunderstanding. But it goes to show that the young school teacher, who was not Marianne, was so very unimportant in the larger scheme of things. She was so replaceable. She was just a reflection of themselves. She had no real purpose, so therefore when her death happened, it was very innocuous. That's right. And another character worth mentioning is the character of Greta. And I thought she was really fascinating throughout. She was the Baroness's servant. So when Marianne first arrives as a guest at the Baroness's estate, she kind of meets Greta, and Greta's very removed and severe and inaccessible and she's kind of a strange lady but when Marianne frees the Baron Greta is hysterical and her hysterics are I don't even know what I could compare them to I mean we talked about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre but her maniacal laughter oh god it's me it's me it's god And then Greta reappears throughout the film as kind of a... I guess she's supposed to kind of be the female counterpart to Igor. Is She's yeah. not quite a vampire, but she's under the spell and she does the bidding. And she's quite willing to sacrifice herself for her creatures of the night that she's protecting. Yeah, pretty much all women in this film fall under the power of the Baron at some point or another. It is only the men... Well, really, only Dr. Van Helsing, who is able to resist this kind of sexual power that he has, I guess. Well, at one point he says to Marianne, don't look at him in the eyes. But I think the fact that the title of the film is called Brides of Dracula is we're not meant to focus on Marianne. We're meant to look at this pattern, this almost polygamous pattern of matrimony is more than just this romantic entanglement it's subservience and it's living in my home and keeping my home up and that's kind of what the baron had going on and i think that's absolutely correct one of the really interesting things to me about this film was that they kept referring to it as the cult of vampirism uh not the plague not the disease not the curse 
of vampirism, it was the cult. And of course, one of the biggest cult aspects is taking of multiple partners. Uh, usually it is from a man's vantage point. So having several wives, several partners, several women available to you at any time. Now this again gained prominence really in the States, kind of in the 1960s, again through the 70s in popular culture. So I don't think this was a direct reflection of anything going on, but it, it's very curious that they took that word and, and it's kind of culturally associated with these things like the Manson cult and you know Mormonism. There is a sense that these new religions and these cults have developed in favor of the male and the male dominance because that is order and that is correct and that creates stability. That's right. And the link between a revolutionary or a cult leader or a monster such as Dracula having several wives, like polygamy is the kind of thing where you really want to spread your seed as widely as possible. And insofar as you might be able to go door to door and convince people to convert to Jehovah's Witness, or in Dracula's case, get these bitches out on the street and biting people and turning them into vampires, it always kind of seems to fall upon the women to propagate this ideology, which is why it goes into a cult. So I also thought it was really interesting that they used that kind of language to refer to something like this, where the Baron could have just as easily assembled a team of dudes to do his bidding. I didn't find his brides in this film to be particularly sexually persuasive, certainly not in comparison to the Francis Ford Coppola remake that came years later, where they were very nude, very sexual scenes. We made mention to the two contemporary versions of the original novels, and I think they're important to mention. I, I really would like to one day in this podcast maybe go more in depth into them and, and discuss them a bit further because I think they are flawed, but I think they are also fascinating. And I am again referring to Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula and Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So those are both early to mid-90s films. Now what's fascinating is they both really, really, really try to adhere to the conventions of the novel. They both added in things that were in the original novel that cannot be translated into the original movies, usually due to budget constraints and lack of filming techniques and time and resources and all of that. Now, in Dracula, it is mainly the addition of the prologue, which is the revelation that, indeed, Dracula is the historical figure of Vlad the Impaler, and that he did have one true love, and in that film her name is Elisabetta, also played by Winona Ryder, who plays Mina. And she is killed at the beginning of the film, and that is the point where Vlad or Dracula rejects God in Christianity, and that is when he is cursed to life eternal. And so she really becomes his foil throughout the rest of the film. She becomes his sticking point and his raison d'etre. Uh, so she is the reason why he keeps going, why he keeps living, and he hopes to one day meet her you know, reincarnation, and oh, holy shit, he does, but oh no, she's engaged to Keanu Reeves. Whoa. So that was in the very early 90s, and then in 1994, you have Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, directed by Kenneth Branagh. And Kenneth Branagh had just been coming off of a lot of successes with Shakespeare and coming out of the Royal Shakespeare Company and really bringing that to life in the cinema and doing a really fantastic job. And then he makes, just as I would describe Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola, a very flawed but a very, very interesting interpretation of this novel. Now, again, the main addition to Kenneth Branagh's film is the inclusion of the death of Elizabeth, who is played in this film by Helena Bonham Carter. After she dies, after Monster rips out her still-beating heart, Dr. Frankenstein cannot contain his grief and, in fact, reanimates her, stitches her back together and brings his beloved back to life. And she comes back as the bride of Frankenstein-like figure 
but only to bring about death to herself because she is so distraught and so horrified by what she is. And she has a very childlike mind. She cannot process and and therefore is uh, deeply troubled. So it's very fascinating that both of these remakes, both in the early 90s, really predicated a lot of their climax on the stakes and the addition of a loved one into these monsters lives and again it raises the stakes in a really interesting way it normalizes them in a really interesting way and it makes them more sympathetic it definitely makes them more relatable to our audiences and i think that really harkens to the changes in the views of marriage is in the original films, these were brides and with them came themes of obligation and subservience and everything that we talked about. Whereas the remakes were just kind of like, these these are love stories to make us feel for these sympathetic monsters. And uh, insofar as there were no marriages of any sort in that rehashing of Dracula, it was a very heartfelt love story that we could all relate to. And the same in Frankenstein. Finally, in this remake, there really was a bride of Frankenstein, and she kind of was a bride to the both of them in some twisted, fucked up way. That's it. That's our Valentine's Day episode. This is our wedding present to all of you. Thank you so much for listening to us. Andrea, you say things. Things and stuff and things. Thank you once again for listening. We're so happy to be back for yet another year and sharing our Valentine's Day morbidity with you. And I have one quick announcement. I was recently... If only in his home, my guest on the Rue Morgue podcast, uh, hosted by Stuart Feedback Andrews. I don't know if I'm exactly allowed to divulge the content of this episode, but needless to say, it's an episode that will require your input. So if you can, I would encourage you to subscribe to the Rue Morgue podcast if you aren't already, or maybe like them on Facebook or Twitter, so you can kind of see when a new episode comes out, and uh, give it a listen. And again, you will need to let us know what you think about it for a very important reason, and I can tell you yet. Basically, Alex is going head-to-head with the most stubborn human being that I've met in my actual life. So (laughs) if she's telling you to listen because she needs support, then uh, please do so. And please listen up for our next episode next month because we'll be back. We don't know with what yet, but that's part of the fun, isn't it? So from both of us at the Faculty of Horror, office hours are closed.